Hi, this is Trevor Firetog, writer of Usual Monsters, and you are listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. And welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators of new or upcoming projects. We open up a guest reading an excerpt from their project, and then follow with the interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I'm Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited horror literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. In today's episode, we interviewed P.L. McMillan, author of Sisters of the Crimson Vine, her new novella. Let's get started. P.L. McMillan is an author, blogger, and also interviewer. She has written numerous short stories that have been published in the likes of Strange Lands Short Stories from Flame Tree Press and Ah! That's What I Call Horror, edited by Chelsea Pumpkins. And of course, her short story collection, What Remains When the Stars Burn Out. McMillan joins us today to talk about her novella, Sisters of the Crimson Vine, which is to be released December 6th. I'm P.L. McMillan, and this is a reading from Sisters of the Crimson Vine. I woke up, rising through tendrils of clinging sleep. Moonlight fell softly across the empty beds like ghostly whispers. A weak wind whistled against the windows, rustling the trees I could see through the glass. I pushed myself up to a seated position, rubbing my face and feeling overheated. I thought of the conversation at dinner and groaned. What must the nuns think of me, getting drunk and then rambling on about God and religion? Ugh, I'm such an ass, I said, staring up at the ceiling. Just outside my door, something scraped against the stone. A chill rolled down my spine as I froze in my bed, my fist still pressed against my forehead. It was an irregular sound. Scrape, scrape, pause. Scrape, long pause. In the otherwise silent convent, the sound was as loud as a scream and sent goosebumps all over my body. The low moan that accompanied the scraping made me my shiver deepen. Caught in the grip of a growing foreboding and yet unable to resist my own curiosity, I got out of bed, balancing on my good foot. I hopped over to the door, trying to be silent, and pressed my ear against the wood. Accompanying the scraping was a low, desperate moan punctuated by panting. All these sounds created a sickly cacophony, the dirge of a dying beast trying to find a safe place to leave behind its mortal prison, a dark corner in which to die. I put my hand on the knob and paused. It might be better to just go back to bed, hide under the covers like I had when I was a little boy. But like in a bad dream, I couldn't resist opening the door just a crack. Just past my door, crawling his way towards the entrance, was Father O'Halloran. He was dressed in a threadbare, old-fashioned nightshirt, and his whole body was convulsing. He had one arm stretched out, fingers digging into the grout between the stones, pulling himself along, 
a man-sized slug. He looked up as I opened the door and stared down at him. Help me, he whimpered. I went down onto my good knee, stretching the plaster-bound leg out to the side. What are you doing, I whispered. Do you need me to take you back to your room? I reached out to him, and he gripped my hand in his. I could feel how cold and clammy his skin was, and I wanted to pull away in revulsion. The food, he gasped. The food! Yes, father, I heard you got food poisoning. How about I get you back to your room and get you some water? As I said that, I remembered my leg and tried to think of how I would even be able to help at all. I leaned out farther, looking up and down the hall, hoping a nun might be taking a nighttime walk or patrol or prayer, whatever it is nuns might do at night. I thought about going upstairs and knocking on a door to get someone to help, but realized that I didn't even know which room might be Agatha's or Helena's. Then I thought of Father Griffith. Of course, he was on this, this same floor and would be able to carry Father O'Halloran back to bed. The deacon jerked my hand, pulling me down towards him. I could smell his breath, tinged with the thick aftermath of vomit. You must take me elsewhere. Take me out of here, to the village, or... His whole body shook so hard he dropped my hand, curling in on himself, his head tapping against the stone floor. I gripped the doorframe, pulling myself up. I'm going to get someone to help. He moaned, a sad wheedling noise, then tried to reach for me again. Agatha, I called, my voice echoing through the night-shrouded hall. Father Griffith? No, 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 the deacon panted. Anyone? I reached for my crutches. The man retched, his whole body heaving, and his back humping up as he vomited across the floor. A thin, watery pool of black bile funneled between the stones, vile-smelling rivers. Oh, dear. A shivery voice full of amusement. I looked up and saw a nun walking towards us. She wasn't one that I'd formerly met, and I was at a loss for her name, but she was stunningly beautiful. Her thick red hair hung down in heavy curls to her waist, unbraided or tamed in any way. Her pale skin was spectral in the darkness, seeming to float since her black habit was almost invisible in the shadows. She looked tall, towering over us as she approached. Then she deigned to sink to our level, kneeling and pressing a hand to the back of Father O'Halloran's neck. He looked up. She looked up at me. Her eyes were dark, endless, and I could feel myself falling into them. He's running a fever, she said, breaking her enchantment over me. The deacon whimpered as she rolled him over, not very gently at that, treating him like he was a sack of grain to be inventoried rather than a suffering human being. I thought it was food poisoning, I said, looking down at O'Halloran's panic-stricken face. It's the stomach flu. Poor man. He was still reaching for my hand, though now his eyes were closed and he was whimpering his way through a frenzied prayer. Maybe we should take him to a hospital, I said, staring down at him with pity. Of course, I'll be sending someone to the village immediately, but until then, he is in good hands, just like you, the nun said, and her smile gleamed in the darkness. She slipped an arm around the deacon and stood, pulling his limp body up with her like he was a doll. I stared up at her, shocked at the surprising strength she had just shown. She made her way back down the hall, taking Father O'Halloran with her, his feet dragging along the floor. I watched her take him into his room, and then his door shut. I stayed there listening. The warm night wind whistled through the hall, rushing in from the open end that led to the veneered. It was a long time before I left my threshold vigil, wincing at my cramping leg, and hopped back to bed. We are joined uh, this afternoon by author P.L. McMillan. Uh, Plim. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me out to be on your podcast. 
Oh, it's uh, awesome to have you. Uh, we know you have a, a new book coming out next month, uh, Sisters of the Crimson Vine, which we are looking forward to talking about. But first, we are a very cat-friendly podcast here. We know you've got some fur babies, so you got to introduce us to your kitties real quick. Yeah, so I have two black cats. Mm -hmm. um, they were brothers that we had fostered, and then we ended up just falling in love and adopting so um, because we had two, we each got to name one. So I named the long haired one who looked very much the, the gentleman Poe after obvious gothic influences. And my husband, who's very much a gamer, named the short haired brother Zerg. Uh, <laughs> and he does live up to his name. He races around. He Zerg rushes. Um, and Poe's very neurotic. So I guess that fits too. <laughs> um, yeah. A complimentary kitty for Zerg called like Kerrigan or something, and they could be buddies as well. I mean, maybe, but I think two cats is enough because we also have two chinchillas. Oh, and four animals is, I think, the limit for me at this moment. <laughs> but so my Sherlock, uh, my chinchillas are Sherlock and Spuds. Aww, I I bet they're super like comfy to pet. They're like petting clouds, but they're the sassiest creatures you'll ever meet. Oh, <laughs> what is their life expectancy? Uh, 20 years, actually. Wow. Yeah. Quite long. So, yeah. so lots of time to get some chinchilla loveys and huggies in. Yes. Yeah. Although I keep having these like terrifying moments where people say, how old are your, how old are your chinchillas? And I always say, oh, they're like two years old. But I've been <laughs> saying that for like five years now. And every time I remember that they're not actually two years old, I, I have a little fright. So they're they're closer to, I guess, seven now. And I don't like saying that. Aww. You know, that's a very, what, Oscar wilde thing where, you know, they'll say something like, uh, you know, Madam Mistress or whatever, you know, she she's a lovely 25. She's been 25 for many years now. <laughs> yes, that's that. my chinchillas. So now that we've uh, been formally introduced to your kitties and your chinchillas, we should turn to writing because that's what we're here for. So would love to hear how you got into writing and specifically into the dark fiction genre. Um, well, I, I feel like most people can say this, but I got into the horror genre quite young. My parents were very good at not censoring what uh, we kids ingested, I guess. So I remember, um, you know, watching uh, Child's Play when I was quite, quite young, oh, wow. um, you know, <laughs> and my mom would often buy me bulk books from Salvation Army to save money. And she often didn't go through it <laughs> to make sure to take stuff out. So I was like, I read a couple Stephen Kings and stuff when I was like in elementary school and was very affected by it. Mm -hmm. But I was absolutely obsessed with R.L. Stein's Fear Street. I think I had like nearly everything he wrote in that world. I was obsessed. And in elementary school, I wanted to be him. Um, so I started writing my own quote unquote Fear Street. But I at that age, I understood horror means you have to put blood on everything. So I wrote stories about bloody skeletons in bloody houses with people covered in blood and the fire was on blood, you know, <laughs> and I used and I illustrated it too. So I used up a lot of red pencil crayons and my mom kept getting calls home and she, she stood up for me. She told the 
teacher, the teacher should be happy that I was writing. And then she took me aside and said, maybe I should keep the horror at home and write other things at school. So it started and I did just that. I understood that maybe like people didn't want to see it. So I wrote a lot of fantasy, I guess, at school um, and horror always at home and a lot of haunted house stuff. I'm still obsessed with haunted house stuff, but when I, I went to the University of Winnipeg and I took creative writing classes, um, a wh- horrific experience. Uh, they really hate genre writers. Well, they did in the classes I, I was in. They were very much against genre and I got hit with a lot of uh, not support, I guess. I wasn't supported. And I, I didn't write for a while afterwards just because it was such a negative experience. And then when I went to Japan, I guess I had a lot of time on my hands, just a lot of downtime. And I ended up writing again and deciding seriously that I wanted to start getting published. I guess it was like an on and off journey throughout my entire life of writing horror. And it's my genre of choice. Like it's pretty much all I ever read. It's what, what all I ever watch and video games. That's all I ever play. Um like, I can't help it. Nothing scratches the itch more than horror for me. Like, when I'm having a bad day, I'm like, I gotta watch some people get killed. That's not, wait, that makes it sound really awful, awful of me. I mean, like, you know, just a nice monster flick. I don't actually want to watch people, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> she oh, wants, yeah. She wants the the nice, uh, scary ghost stories, not the the hostile-type films, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good point. I'm, I'm very much not into what I call gore porn. Like, mm-hmm. I... I don't like think it's bad for other people to watch it, but to me, it's not horror. It's just kind of gross. Like I want to watch a werewolf tear through a city or something, but like hostile and stuff, it doesn't interest me at all. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I'm I'm more into suspense, less gore. Um, I think the suspense is a is a really good element to use, and I think you can use it effectively in horror. Um, so I really enjoyed your reading uh, for us because there, you built a lot of suspense and there's a lot of specula- speculation of who all three characters are. So I, I thought it was a great reading for that. Thank I, you. I say bring back the blood. Channel your inner <laughs> youth. I mean, with the, you know, after, you know, very post Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I think people want their blood, 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 blood. Like, I guess I don't mind blood, but. To me, nothing is more disappointing when I'm watching a movie and the monster ends up just being a person. And I'm like, I wanted like a monster, you know? Yeah. Okay. I, you might be around my age. Did you ever watch on Nickelodeon uh, the cartoon Doug? Yes. Okay, there was this episode of Doug where Doug wanted to watch this really scary movie. And he was like terrified. I, I don't remember, but it, you know, it's like some sort of slasher monster or whatever. And he kept trying to go to the theater and he would run out before like the big climactic ending and he'd have dreams of this and then but he somewhere or another he takes his dog pork chop or whatever and he finally faces his fear he watches the movie and at the very end uh the movie he can like see the zipper on the back of whatever the monster was and it totally broke the spell of him being afraid and then he has like another dream sequence later of like him facing the monster and he hops behind him pulls down the zipper and like like dogs or something fly out I, I don't know. That's just what I was thinking of when you were saying that is an old episode of Doug. <laughs> so, Plem, you have, uh, you're quite the prolific short story author of uh, extensive bibliography of short stories. Uh, one of them's even in a mummy book. So, 
gotta ask, uh, as a gateway into your, you know, canon of uh, literature that you've written, what are like some of the stories that you would suggest to readers that want to get into you? So I will use that segue to plug the fact that my debut collection, What Remains When the Stars Burn Out, was released this year, March. So you can, if uh, if somebody wants to get a, a nice sampling of what I can write, that's a good place to start. Um, it has, I think, all of my best um, representative stories of what my styles are like. Uh, I do have free to read stories on my website plmcmillan.com so people can also go there and check it out i actually every october do a writing challenge where i write seven stories in seven days leading up to halloween based on prompts that people give me um which obviously is quite the challenge like writing a story a day but i feel like it can really spark new and unique ideas and things that you might not write otherwise but if i had to name a couple stories for Cosmic Horror, Godmouth is um, one of my favorites that I've written, and I think one of the ones that is most often mentioned in reviews. Um, it was first published in uh, Hino Magazine for their Lovecraft special edition as the featured story, and then I did include it in my collection, which came out in March. I also like writing a lot of sci-fi horror. I really love Ridley Scott. Um alien is my jam it also has some sci-fi horror as well uh like polychromatic screams was something that i felt was a really unique idea and i had a lot of fun writing i don't want to spoil it though uh buzzkill is a really short fun one um it was based on a prompt i got from a friend who wanted to hear about zombies bees with a b-e-e <laughs> so it was my take on zombies uh, it's a short, punchy one, uh, also in the collection, but I had a lot of fun writing it. Um, I've never written about zombies just because I felt like they were slightly overdone. And so to be challenged to do it in a way that was very much me was quite the challenge and quite fun. But so, yeah, if somebody wants to read works of mine, if they don't want, if they're not ready to like buy a book, they can check out my free to read on my website. And if they are ready, my collection is the best way to go. Um, in addition to 12 stories, I also did 12 custom illustrations for each story. Well, I guess 12 in total, one per each story. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Now, uh, you brought up your website, which is a good segue into the fact that you're actually a prolific blogger. Uh, which seems somewhat of a lost art because I remember probably about 10, 15 years ago, it seems a lot of people were very much into blogs, but not quite so much today. And I would love to know why blogging is import so important to you today. Um, so in the beginning, when I started my website, I didn't have much published. I think I had a single story. So I when I was building my website, I was like, so I'm going to have a, an about and then my bibliography is going to be a single story. I was like, that's pretty bare bones. And I was like, I want people to know me. So I started blogging as a way to kind of, I mean, when you think about Twitter or Instagram or anything like that, it's a very like curated um, view into somebody's life. For me, I'm really bad at posting to Instagram because I'm just not very good at taking photos of myself and then or photos of food or 
books or whatever people do <laughs> I'm not very good at it like some people are so funny like they post videos of them like with books and with music and everything and it's crazy it's I I couldn't do it and then Twitter is very restricted I mean you can only post so much text or whatever so I started blogging as a way to kind of just be me online without having to worry about limits or having to post pictures. I started out writing articles about writing and then I was like, um, I started reviewing and people really enjoyed the reviews. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just exclusively do reviews then. It's so much easier than having to think of content every week because I just do what I love, read or watch a show. And then I talk about my thoughts. One thing I often think about is like, I hope people understand when I'm reviewing, I'm reviewing it as a fan. Like I'm not like this horror uh, aficionado. Like I know a lot of people when they review books for websites, they'll like go into themes and stuff like that. When I review, it's purely just like, did I enjoy this and why? <laughs> like that's the only thing. So if I didn't enjoy something, I often feel bad and I'll try to like point out like the book itself is good. It's just not for me. Like Maybe the maybe the monster was human, and I'm like, I was disappointed. I wanted it to be a were bear, like they promised, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I hope people, when they read my reviews, they understand it's coming from a fan, and like I'm not, you know, super analyzing it unless I notice something and I get excited about it. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, it sure does. I mean, and I think that makes it much more personal and much more enjoyable. But I also think that you can um, there's longevity by going that route. Um, than trying to do strict reviews and gather all the themes because it it almost uh becomes a, a you know more laborious than yeah of joy break the spell here <laughs> and go the thematic you know uh deep dive question here and ask you know about auteur elements <laughs> oh no <laughs> so Flint, so what would you say like through your your work you know uh your short stories uh upcoming sisters of the crimson vine and so on like like what's like like your hallmark your trademark like the element that you think is like distinctly you that's in your writing I feel like that's a difficult question to answer just because I do like experimenting a lot like, um, I'm known for my cosmic and sci-fi horror a lot, but this is a folk horror novella um, that I've written that's coming out. I think one thing that I often ex explore is anxiety and depression or mental health issues in my writing, just because that's something that comes out naturally because I myself have anxiety and struggle with depression. Also, there's definitely themes of feminism throughout my work just because, you know, I myself am a woman who, you know, believes in equality and beyond those themes, I like to focus on powerful descriptions without over explaining. So sometimes I'll have beta readers say that they want more description or they want me to really explain a theme in my story and I find that can sometimes take away some of the magic so I often end up ignoring that uh, <laughs> feedback <laughs> just like I often get yelled at for comma splices but I will die on that hill I will splice all the commas when I want um <laughs> so <laughs> I often get editors 
writers will be like, this isn't grammatically correct. And I'm like, you can't take it from me. <laughs> there's, there's nothing. I just find it so weird. You're reading a work of fiction and there's a semicolon in there. I, it's just like, ooh, like abrupt. Like, I don't know why. I also don't like using the the comma that you use. Oh, I'm forgetting the technical term now. It's when you use it in a sentence before and to separate the clauses or something like. I hate that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's it's grammatically correct to do it both ways. And I often don't like to use it. I like the Oxford comma. Let me specify. <laughs> yeah. But um, when it's like fall before and and it's just separating the two sides of the sentence, I often don't want to use it because the comma, it introduces a pause, however small. And when I'm reading it out loud, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't have the urgency, if that makes sense. Oh, I'm getting nitpicky. <laughs> but um Mike McCarthy can disregard quotation marks in his writing you can <laughs> you can go hog wild in yours I know as long as it's readable right hey. but um I know I've often been um in reviews I'm often commented on my world building so I might be known for that I don't know if I go into my stories going like I got a world build in that certain plim way um uh, I think it just happens because I usually have built it up in my head um, so when I'm writing a story, I often have the whole world built in my head, but I'm not going to explain all of that in my story. I'm only going to explain what's relevant in a way with some flavor pieces, of course. But I'm, I think that's one thing that's often brought up is my descriptions and my world building. Very, very cool. I, I think a lot of folks have, uh, recently have adapted the uh, I need you know the George R.R. R. Martin 15 pages of you know describing the the dinner set now sometimes you gotta you know stick with it and that makes it even way better yeah. I have been called out for my food porn before oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah strict except for food porn scenes <laughs> I don't I think I just like food so I accidentally will sometimes get into it huh. um but yeah, during um during a live reading event during the Q and A section, um somebody was like, "Why did you spend so much time describing the mac and cheese?" And I was like, "I like mac and cheese." <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with that. I I kind of think of you know with Nick is like really into tiki drinks, and oftentimes you know through him. If I see something where a drink is mentioned, I will pause. And I know you do too. Like, why did they choose that drink? I know what that drink would be like. You know, why, you know, was there some sort of subtext going along with <laughs> with the drink? <laughs> but, um, yeah. And uh, dear listener, I would like you to know that upon revealing that he likes tiki drinks, he is wearing a Hawaiian shirt. He is. What? Oh, yeah. I am. It's one of my favorite shirts. Yeah. Called out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a recent one. But uh, okay, so for cosmic horror stories, what do you feel makes the best stories or the most stand out within the genre? So again, a lot of times when I read other people's work, it's mainly for pleasure. So I'm not like hyper analyzing it. It's like, oh, what has made this so good? I know what drew me to cosmic horror to begin with is that sense of helplessness. It probably ties in, you know, to having anxiety and such like you're often sometimes feeling helpless and that is what can cause you to have uh anxiety um attack so I was drawn to it I guess because that's something that kind of uh 
up is off-putting and frightening is like the loss of control. Something's bigger than you. Um, also, I just like kaiju giant monsters. Oh my <laughs> God, yes. Um, I love giant monsters so much. A good kaiju story will always be um, something that I find delight in. Um, I also like the sense of secrecy that will be built into cosmic horror usually because like the main character doesn't know and they're finding these deep dark secrets and the knowledge is making them crazy. <laughs> um, but I don't know if I have ever like again I'm very I don't know if this makes me hedonistic but like I do like often read things purely for pleasure and I'm not like hyper analyzing it. Um, but I know that's what drew me to cosmic horror. Like I started like most people with Lovecraft, but the fact that um, I, I love the fact that cosmic horror can have almost like a shared universal aspect to it. Like we see the Necronomicon everywhere at this point or Lovecraftian things um, everywhere. And it's just, it's like finding secret doors in places you don't expect it when you see a, a a Lovecraftian or a cosmic horror reference in a, a story that you weren't like expecting it. And you're like, ooh, like I found a little secret. Ooh, fun. So I don't know if that exactly explains it. <laughs> Just ki kaiju and helplessness. That's the perfect, you gotta have that. <laughs> but I, I like how you really keyed into the universal aspect. I hadn't thought about that before. But there really is that sense, you know, the Necronomicon, uh, that it pervades different pockets and you bring up and, and you immediately know, you cue into your your knowledge of that. Well, you could watch like Army of Darkness and all of a sudden like, wait a second, this is totally cosmic horror, but it's Army of Darkness because, you mm -hmm. know, Necronomicon and other things. Yeah, I just like really enjoy the the idea of something larger could be out there, I guess. Like a lot, like I like slasher uh, horror, like Freddy and Jason and all that fun stuff, but they're very much like humanoid beings. They're very much like seeable and knowable, but like the idea that like somewhere between, between the void and the stars, there's something waiting in the, in the chaotic ethos of the universe. Well, on the subject of other genres, because uh, you have written a, uh quite a fair share of cosmic horror and you've now got folk horror coming out but mm -hmm. are there any other genres or even mediums such as you know uh scripts poetry or so on and so forth that you haven't worked in yet but you really want to um oh my god it would be a dream to um collab on a video game can you uh -huh. imagine i so i also uh play a lot of horror video games and i would just love to see like my i like a story of mine adapted into a video game like prey was one that i played a few years ago and i'm still absolutely obsessed with it's living rent free in my head and always will it's a sci-fi horror um so it's been out for a while so people can play it i think it's available on all platforms at this point um but it's a lot of fun it also feels kind of cosmic horror e sometimes too as well have you played any of the recent i think they're from frogware but they've done some lovecraftian games like mm -hmm. the sunken city um i have that um downloaded actually i haven't started it yet because i've been playing um I have it like uh which one was i playing most recently i just finished the maid of scar and then i've been playing canarium 
But I do have the Sinking City just like waiting <laughs> on my Steam list here that I'm looking at. I'm like, oh yes. <laughs> no, there's there's been a nice renaissance of indie horror stuff where you know the old you know it used to be uh, really it's just Resident Evil out there and maybe some Silent Hill and Fatal Frame, but it seems like with Steam the indie horror community has really uh came about so i i feel left out because i have an xbox so i have to wait and cross my fingers successful on steam so i can play it i know i well uh, maybe you know we'll be able to change that down the road maybe so. but i've got i've got a mac so the mac is also not very set myself up to to fail here <laughs> So now I think it's time to talk about Big Kahuna, your new book Ooh. coming out, Sisters of the Crimson Vine. So I guess the, the first question is, tell us about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Sisters of the Crimson Vine, again, it's coming out December 6th. Get your pre-orders in today. It is a folk horror, although it has some cosmic horror in there. So it, it pretty much starts off with our... Uh, main character, John Ainsworth, he's your average British guy, you know, just driving down the countryside. Um, I guess to caveat, it is set in the 1970s, and I'll get into why in a bit. But his car crashes, um, and he wakes up in a dilapidated convent that's occupied by 13 unconventional nuns. And so say he's injured, he can't leave, he's uh, pretty much trapped. Uh, his car is getting fixed up, and he's in a cast. Um, there are other, there are two other guests who've come from the church and are there to audit the convict's records because they believe the nuns are withholding uh, profit from the church. And so it's revealed that there is a ceremony that's coming up that they celebrate yearly. And then he starts to discover secrets in this old convent that make him wary of what might be coming. You know, from your reading earlier in the title, and I, I'm, this might be me just kind of reading a little differently, but I, I, I somehow or another get these strong, like, AIP hard 1960s vibes, like a Vincent Price type movie or a Boris Karloff, because, you know, there was movies like uh, The Crimson Altar with the Boris Karloff and Barbara Steele, and, you know, of course, the Dunwich Horror with uh, Dean Stockwell. I don't know, I just, with that title, and uh, I know you said a little bit later, 1970s, it just feels like a, a nice technicolor aip not quite hammer but aip type film and that gives me a warm and fuzzies because i love that period of horror that was being made yeah so the reason i said it in the 1970s is the english countryside was suffering from a massive drought mm -hmm. so that does tie into the plot okay um and actually quite a few people died um during that period uh, due to the drought and its negative effects on the economy and farming and all that stuff. Oh, fascinating. Very Wicker Man-ish as well. Yes. Uh, um, uh, just as an aside, I, when you said that it was set in the 70s and this this man's in a comet, it actually made me think of an old uh, Clint Eastwood movie where it's set in during the Civil War and he's a soldier, he's injured and he ends up at a convent. And it creates a lot of havoc because, <laughs> you know, he's the only guy there. And um, yeah, just a lot of interesting things about what the nuns are all about. Um, I cannot remember the name of that movie, but IMDb a, will be at your uh, service yes, later. It, 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 it is an earlier film that he did. And it made me think of that. 
Uh, what was the genesis of this uh, novella? I, I've begun to realize that I'm probably the worst author to ask that. Um, <laughs> I feel a lot of my stories, I can never remember the true inspiration. And I can only remember like the journey, I guess. And this also is one of them. I can't remember the exact time I was like, I'm going to write about some nuns in a convent, <laughs> you know, cause uh, it was like how um, I don't know if I even meant for it to be folk horror. It just ended up that way. I know um, I looked back on my notes that because for once I actually I usually am a pantser and I just write. <laughs> Um, I actually plotted this out. Um, I divided the novella into sections based on the steps in winemaking. Oh. Um, yeah. So there's five sections and it begins with harvesting, crushing. Um, then you have uh, fermentation, clarification, and finally aging and bottling. Mm -hmm. And so I divided it into those five sections and um, that kind of helped me plot out what would happen in the five sections. However, before that, there are no notes because usually the story lives in my head very dangerously at the risk of my forgetfulness of dying a lonely and unknown death. Again, I couldn't tell you why I picked nuns, why I picked England. I know I picked the 1970 because of the drought and other reasons I can't reveal because it would be a spoiler. Um, <laughs> it was kind of born from that idea I can't remember exactly why it started, but I know it evolved in the idea of, so I was brought up uh, Catholic and I think anyone who's being honest with how the religion is, women are often treated as kind of like, um, you know, barefoot in the kitchen breeders, uh, no offense to people who have children. I'm just saying how it feels as a child free woman uh, to be brought up in that atmosphere. Um, it can feel very like unwelcome. There's also the historical fact that women weren't often treated well in the world or in the religion. Um, convents were often a place to send unwanted women. If they didn't choose to go there, they were often, you know, sent there for reasons. And so I guess like a part of me was also the idea of like, what if a convent chose its own path? Hmm. And so... There is this element, and I'm like trying not to spoil it, but it's so hard to also talk about the reason why I wrote it the way I did. But there is the idea that the, the convent was abandoned by the church during the the last world war, which would have been close to the timeline. Um, and they were left to starve. And now these churchmen have come demanding some of the profit of the vineyard, because although they weren't the church wasn't willing to help out this small convent, they were more than willing to take the profit afterwards. Um, and I think that does tie into a lot of, you know, how women have been treated in the world. You know, if we're not going to help you, but if you start making something, we want something of that. Um, and the nuns very much act in a polite way um, because women often feel like they have to, like if they're being harassed by somebody they don't want to rock the boat so they're just like oh like maybe I'll here's my number but uh, you know I'll talk to you later when really it's just a way to escape type thing so I guess that fed into it as well and then it just naturally became folk horror and cosmic horror from that but I can't I couldn't tell you where the seed came from I can just tell you like how I decided to factor in certain themes and choices if that makes sense mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it well, does. Well, to dive a bit more on that, you know, through the process of you writing and and since it is a historic uh, uh, story, researching as well, what were some of the things that you learned or discovered through the process? When I was looking, I think it was when I was just researching like convents, um, the history of that, I stumbled upon the drought. And that's how I decided it would be in the 1970s because like, I guess I'd never heard that there was a drought in England at that time. And apparently it was horrific enough that like lots of people died. So it's weird. Like, I was like, how did I not know that? I had actually done like a massive amount of research because there was a section at the beginning and the end that were set in the slight future during the Queen's uh, Silver Jubilee celebration. It got cut. The I should have listened. The beta readers were like, don't use it. It's like stupid. And I was like, no, I'm stubborn and I'll do what I want. And then the press was like, you don't need that. You're going to have to cut it. And I was like, gosh, darn it. I should have listened to the beta readers the whole time. <laughs> A lot of my research went into that and thus like became useless. Um, but I did a lot of research into convents, how they were operated. Um, also a lot to make sure I got the um, religious stations correct, like um, the father and the deacon, um, as well as um, I looked up how, because nuns choose a new name when they become nuns because they're choosing their new name as a bride of Christ. So I was like, how do they know what names to choose? So I looked up like historical names of nuns and that's how I got, you know, some of my names and the naming conventions um, among other things. So I guess the naming conventions of nuns and the fact that there was like a really horrific drought in the 1970s were new things that I discovered that's really fascinating about the the names for nuns because I thought that they didn't have any choice, you know, kind of perpetuating the powerlessness of women. Kind of going along with that, as you're writing, uh, do you write uh, to music? Uh, do you have some sort of music going? Because I, I kind of think of Georgian chants or something like that. But, you know, is there music that you listen to or do you have a suggested soundtrack for listeners um, as they're reading? I feel like I am very chaotic in the way that I just like run screaming into the writing void and hoping for the best. I know some writers will create mood boards or specific uh, Spotify lists. I don't. It depends on my mood. Sometimes I need the TV on in the background. And I'll have like Buffy on or something to get me in like the, it's like, so weird fact, pandas are really stupid. And so they won't mate. They're like really stupid. So some zookeepers will show them a video of like other pandas mating to get the pandas in the mood. And it's almost like I'm tricking myself to get in the horror writing mood by watching horror. Anyways, that was a weird analogy. Um, but like when I do listen to music, I have, um, I'll usually set up a cue in the vibe that I want, but it's never like something permanent I have. It's just what I'm in the mood for. I listen to a lot of rock and metal, but also I have been known to listen to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra's Carol of the Bells on repeat for an hour. So I guess it depends on what the chaos wants that day. So Sisters of the Crimson Vine comes out early December, which by the time this episode drops will be very even sooner than this. So I want to ask, uh, what's the biggest thing you want to accomplish with your story? I don't know if it's the biggest thing. It's my, my goal whenever I write something and hope to get it out there. I just, I'm writing horror that I enjoy. And so I hope people enjoy reading it. And that's true of 
pretty much anything I produce. I mean, I got into writing horror because I admired everyone who wrote horror. I loved horror movies and horror video games, just people putting their stuff out there and giving thrills and chills to people and allowing them to experience like a new view of what horror can be. I guess that's how I write as well. I'm writing the stories that obviously I enjoy because I guess I thought of it. And so I write it the way I enjoy writing it. And I hope that it just gives somebody a fun, enjoyable time, really. That's right. So that means, you know, as you looked up to other authors, you got other readers looking up to you as well. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I don't need to be looked up to. If people just enjoy my book, that's fine. <laughs> and and a video uh, developer. Yes. <laughs> or, or if... Um, you know, uh, Mr. Aster of Midsummer, uh, if he wants to do a collab, um, my emails are open. <laughs> yes, yes, there we go. I, that, that'd be a good, a good partnership, I that, think. Yeah. To, to write a screenplay that becomes an A24 film. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, like, um, going back to a question uh, you brought up before about, like, if there were other things, uh, other mediums I'd want to get into, like, I guess I could see myself trying my hand at screenwriting because it would be neat to get it to see something of mine in film as well. Um, but I mean, in the end, I, I work a nine to five because mm -hmm. um, writing doesn't pay the bills yet. No. Mr. Aster, my emails are open. So I only have a limited time and I do have a lot of hobbies that I enjoy doing. And um, actually a while ago, it came to a head where I felt like I was doing too much, like I was knitting and I was cross-stitching and painting and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm like, because I'm doing so much, I'm only spending a little time on each. And so I reprioritized that writing is my main thing and I enjoy writing the most. I haven't gotten into screenplay, I guess, because it's new. So I'll take some time to learn how to do it. And I always am cognizant of my current projects and what I want to finish because I have a lot of ideas in my head that need to be born. <laughs> it's diff difficult when you have a myriad of, of interests and you want to try them all. I, I yeah. have the same yeah. issue. We're, we're nine to five folks here too. And after that, you know, that's the, the second job of academic writing, podcasting, and of course, you know, fitting in a little bit of video gaming and all mm -hmm. that other stuff. Uh, they, it does pile up but it's yeah. nice when you accomplish any sort of project and you realize it to the world and especially if other folks also go with it and say oh mm -hmm. yeah. yeah if only it was like the renaissance time and we could have benefactors giving us money so we could be artists uh, mm -hmm. gosh darn it uh-huh uh our, our say, emails are open in case anybody wants to be benefactor. yes all of our emails are open to benefactors yeah. <laughs> like to experience what it was like in the uh, renaissance time we're 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 available <laughs> except for like the the clothing the lack of proper health care and the lack of yes. uh, female rights if we could have i want my cake to and to eat it too without being beheaded <laughs> yes yes that that's a good good qualification there yes. so again congratulations on uh sisters of the crimson vine and excited that that's going to be out um in just a few weeks since we're we're talking and it's mid-November. Um, would love to hear uh, any other upcoming news, releases, projects uh, that you want to share with our listeners today. 
Um, yeah, so uh, the big uh, one on the forefront, uh, I had a, I guess it was kind of like a novelette because I refused to listen to the word limits. <laughs> um, but I, I have a 90s horror story being published in a 90s horror collection called Ah, That's What I Call Horror, being edited by Chelsea Pumpkins. It's uh, coming out in January, and I will actually be hosting a live reading event for that. So I'll make sure to send you a link um, if you want to. Uh, Wait, check is that, that out. the anthology with like the very Lisa Frank cover? Yes, uh, that was done by Cassie Daly. It's very beautiful. Like it's so gorgeous. Um, I wrote a um, cosmic horror slash haunted blockbuster story. And fun fact, I actually worked with another author, Caleb Stevens, and we decided that uh, he has a story in there as well. Uh, we Our stories are set in the same setting with uh -huh. the same characters um and his is set in high school mine is set in college so you see the characters kind of um in two different settings so that that's pretty exciting i would recommend checking it out so again that's coming out pre-orders are available now so if you check out chelsea pumpkin's website there's actually a google form that if you sign out for a signed copy you actually get a bunch of merch as well some of which i designed and I have to do the horrible author thing of saying there's um, a couple other projects that I'm involved with, but I'm it's not at the place where I can like tell you about it yet. I'm sorry. But one of which uh, I can say it is a cryptid novella that will be coming out. So if you like Mothman. I, I have to say, let, let's see if we can deduce some more info from her. What's your favorite cryptid? And also yeah. Mothman. <laughs> Mothman. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> so, Clem, what's the best way folks can uh, keep track of you to see your upcoming projects? As mentioned, I do have my website, plmcmillan.com. I blog there regularly. I usually post something once or twice a week. Um, it also has a free to read section as well as a published work section. So you can see everything that's been published as well as, as links to where you can buy it. Besides that, I'm on Twitter and uh, less frequently Instagram as author PLM. I do have my own YouTube channel, um, uh, Plim Talks, where I interview people in the industry to kind of find out, um, you know, tips and tricks for people who are like me and are always hoping to learn something new. So probably those. I do have Facebook, PL McMillan, but like, I hate Facebook. Just follow <laughs> me on Twitter or Instagram, please, or just better yet like check my website every monday no that's the way to go especially since social media especially now is so you know ephemeral you know someone else owns it controls it dictates what you can see when you have your own website you know you have the nice warm and fuzzy that this is this is my stuff uh please take a look at it uh and you know i i that's one of the reasons why I think like your website is so cool because you do keep a blog and all that uh, other stuff. It's mm -hmm. the lost art of having a website, folks. Yeah, so and I I do have a I tried to organize it because I realized it was getting like so large. So I do have like a reviews tab. So if anyone wants to know my thought of something, if I've read it, it's there out in alphabetical order, and you can oh, check it out. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Plama, thanks for coming on this afternoon to talk about Sisters of the Crimson Vina crossing uh, fingers for it to be mad successful. And, and of course, wish you a great upcoming uh, holiday season as well. 
Yeah. And thanks for having me on the HP Lovecast podcast. And make sure you subscribe now, dear listener. And that concludes our transmissions for this episode. We would like to thank Trevor Firetog for providing a bumper for this episode. Trevor is an actor, special makeup effects artist, and the author of Usual Monsters, and several short stories including What's Your Secret, found in the collection Even in the Grave. We wish Trevor much continued success in the coming new year. For December, we'll be posting our regular HP Lovecast episode mid-month and another episode of Transmissions at the end of the month. Details will be posted on our social media channels soon. Please contact us if you would like to be a guest on Transmissions. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. 